Uh, good morning. It's returning to Psalm 119. We're going to read verses 161 all the way through the end of 176. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like the one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. You may be seated. As we begin our study in the Word, I'm going to ask if you would to pray with me. Lord, I need you this day. This is your Word given to your people. And you have entrusted me with proclaiming it faithfully. Move through your Spirit, directing my words. Pray that I would listen for your voice, desiring for your message to come across. And Lord, by the same Spirit, I pray that you would awaken hearts and minds to the urgency of hearing and reading and studying and meditating and memorizing and even sharing this word of yours with others. Give us a high level of sensitivity to your word. And I pray that our hearts would be attracted to your word Lord, it's wonderful to behold. It's a joy to take in. And Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. In his book, God Took Me by the Hand, Jerry Bridges writes in the opening pages of the introduction, December 4th, 2009, I celebrated my 80th birthday. The year leading up to that was a time of questioning whether I would make an 80th birthday. No one in my extended family on either side, aunts, uncles, cousins, or parents, had ever lived to be 80. My older brother, who I thought would break the 80 barrier, died three weeks after his 79th birthday. The year following, which was 2010... I did a lot of reflecting on God's working in my life for 80 years. That's a long time, isn't it? As I reflected on his leading, God's leading, this expression kept coming to my mind. When I was 17 years old, it seemed as if God took me by the hand and said, come with me. And for more than 65 years... God has, as it were, continued to hold my hand and lead me in the path he's marked out for me. This does not mean that life has been a great success all these years. There have been lots of times when life has been hard and discouraging, but through it all, I see God's hand drawing me along the path he ordained for me before I was born. Because my growing up years were Years of economic survival, I never dreamed big dreams nor aspired to do great things. All I wanted to do was make a decent living and be a good Christian. I had no idea what this would look like in the future. Humanly speaking, I certainly was not a candidate to be someone used by God as has happened. The pages that follow are a record of the 65-year journey of being led by God's hand. And that's the beginning of the book. Turning 80 years of age, Mr. Bridges began to think and reflect on his life. What he refers to as his journey of being led by God's hand. And nearing the final act on the stage of life serves to remind one 
of the past and to see the connections from the past and how they've served to play a role here in the present. Each of us are on a journey with the Lord. Some of us are veterans, having greatly matured along the way. Some of us are veterans simply by age only and have remained as spiritual babes. Some are just beginning the journey with the Lord. They're excited, they're invigorated, they're eager to experience all of what God may have in store for them. And perhaps some of you are here today and you have yet to begin your journey with the Lord. My prayer is that you might cry out to God, as we see the psalmist do today, cry out to God asking him to begin that journey with the Lord. And I pray that each one here has a productive journey with the Lord and that he would be the highlight of your story. That his hand, guiding you along the way, would characterize and summarize the life that you've lived. You know, as I was considering 80 plus years of living from Mr. Bridges, I was reminded of things coming to an end. And it occurred to me that today is the final message in Psalm 119. This is the eighth of eight messages that we've taken time to study here in September and October of this year. And I started thinking about each of the stanzas preached and the lessons learned and the psalm as a whole, the intent of the chapter, and wondered whether we really take inventory at the close of a sermon series. Do we really consider what the Lord has taught us, in this case over these last eight weeks? What's the Lord been teaching us along this journey in Psalm 119? How is his word working in me? How is he guiding me along through this psalm? On one hand, exposing my selfish, sinful habits, and on the other, taking me by the hand to show me wonderful things in his word that I've yet to discover. Murray Capel in his book, The Heart is the Target, he says that when you hear the Bible, when you hear the Bible, you should hear God speak and his voice should make a difference in your life. True? Shouldn't it make a difference? Whether it's coming to the end of a class, coming to the end of a good book, coming to the end of a particular phase of life, the end of a job, the end of your stay perhaps in a certain home, filled with vivid memories, what are you doing with these things? Do you take time to process what's going on? What is the Lord teaching me? Having completed your coursework in a particular subject area, what have you learned? How has the Lord shaped you through this season? The stanza before us this morning is Tao, the 22nd stanza of Psalm 119. And if you've missed any of the previous seven messages, I highly recommend that you take time to listen. That being said, I'm encouraged, encouraged greatly, that you need not have the previous seven to grasp and understand the eighth one today. I believe the closure here of Psalm 119, in many ways, it sounds familiar refrains, echoing backward to previous instruction and thoughts. And yet packaging nicely, I believe, in one stanza what Solomon said, the whole conclusion of the matter. I don't believe here in this stanza there is new material. And rightly so, when we think about a conclusion. Oftentimes, as we're writing and we write a conclusion, in our conclusion we don't oftentimes introduce new material. It's not necessarily intended to offer new insight, new information, new lines of discussion. But I believe instead it's intended to clarify, to package, to succinctly punctuate the truths that have previously been voiced. So keep that in mind as you read 169 through 176. 
And I'd like for you to look for the markers that characterize the whole text of Psalm 119. And the whole of Scripture, for that matter. For I believe that what we find in the whole of Psalm 119 is also, in large part, found in the whole of Scripture. What's before us is a scope of text in Psalm 119, eight verses that sit within the confines of 176 verses. And these 176 verses are positioned within the context of what we know as the Psalms, made up of 150 chapters. And the book of Psalms is but one of 66 books in the Bible. And this particular book that we're reading, Psalms, is one of five in a series of books that are called the books of poetry or the wisdom books. And so Psalms fits in the midst of the poetry genre. Now, all of that spoken to help you understand the text. We see context and genre and language, all of those things put together, they all contribute as handles for understanding a text. But truly, it is the Spirit of God, is it not? It's the Spirit of God who opens the eyes, opens the ears, and grants understanding to apply these truths, these words of life, as we walk along the way, as we lie down, and as we rise up. You see, these words of Scripture are intended to infuse meaning into the fabric of our day-to-day lives. They're intended to infuse meaning to our everyday lives. The life that's described in Psalm 119 is not solely a testimony of one man moved by the Spirit intended to wow us with his godliness. That's not the purpose. That's not the point. The testimony is meant to instruct and exhort and correct, but I believe its purpose is to also move the reader as well. Move him. Some of us don't like to move. Some of us like to be comfortable. You know, I was thinking about, uh, there's a cat that we have. It's not an indoor cat. It stays outside. But this cat just, just lays there. It's got a chair, it's a cushion. And that cat just, you look out, he's always laying there. He's laying there, he's asleep, and he's always laying there. You know, and it's, a, it's an interesting picture of some of us. Some of us not only physically like to lay around, we don't like to do stuff. But spiritually is really what I'm driving at. We don't like to move. We don't like to take action. We don't like to take up the Bible because we might be afraid it's calling us to move. It's calling us to do something. It's calling us to act in a way that we would prefer not to act. And yet I believe what we have before us is calling us to move. Psalm 119 is helping us move as a reader to see that godliness training is profitable, yes, even necessary for the one who follows the Lord Jesus Christ. So the psalmist has been led by God's hand, to use the terminology from Mr. Bridges. He's been led by God's hand. And this concluding stanza speaks to that, but I believe it also draws attention to his ongoing desperate need for God as he continues his pilgrimage through this life here on earth. And friends, I pray that you too, as we read this, we would be able to see, each one of us, our desperate need for God as we sojourn here. We are here but for a time. And we're eagerly waiting a Savior. One day He's coming, oh glorious day. And in the meantime, we live in such a way that we need Him. Every hour I need Him. I need Thee every hour. Remember the hymn. That's the way our life ought to be lived, friends. So what's the final word of Psalm 119? What's the whole conclusion of the matter? I was reminded of this in thinking about a a, a highlighter. Because I think this stanza does exactly that. It highlights all of what's come before. You think about a highlighter, and some of you have a highlighter, and you keep them with you, and you use them to highlight certain things in a book that you might be reading or maybe in the scripture itself and you highlight it. Why do you highlight it? You highlight it because you want to be able to see it the next time you open the book because it's such an important truth. You want to remember this. And we can learn some lessons, I believe, uh, through the highlighter 
as we think about this last stanza. This last stanza is highlighting all of what's come before. So I want you to be thinking in terms of highlights. This is going to be a highlight reel of Psalm 119. It's really what it is, the last stanza. So the first highlight that you can jot down is prayer. Prayer. Look at verses 169 and 170. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word. Now I'm reading these two verses together for good reason. If you notice when you read them, there are some commonalities in the two verses. There's what's in poetry called some symmetry. There's some similarities here in those first two verses, right? We see that the cry, let my cry, let my supplication come before you. This is a cry of entreaty. This is a supplication for favor coming before the Lord. And notice the cry and the supplication are prayed before the Lord. Let my cry come before you. Let my supplication come before you. He's petitioning that his voice would gain entry before God's face. In fact, the word before in the Hebrew text... That same word can also be used elsewhere, and it's used on many occasions in the Hebrew text for face. I found that interesting, just thinking about the Hebrew language itself. And it gets helpful for us to, to think about it in terms of our prayer and how here the psalmist is, is praying, let, let my cry come before you. In what manner is he asking it? I believe he's wanting entry right before God's face with his words to come before God, to be in his very presence. And so we see here, this asking, this petitioning. And it got me to thinking, caused me to, to question, and perhaps this is good for all of us to consider this morning. Have you earnestly prayed for your voice to be heard before God? I was thinking about Psalm 5. In Psalm 5, verses 1, 2, and 3, it says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. And here in Psalm 119, we've even seen in verses 145 through 147, look what he says. I cry out with my whole heart. Hear me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I cry out to you. Save me and I will keep your testimonies. I rise before the dawning of the morning and cry for help. I hope in your word. You see, the cry in the text here is to God. It's a cry in what manner? With his whole heart. And what is he crying out for? The reason for such a cry is for help. He realizes he needs help in this life. And the desire of the righteous, I believe, is to have God hear his prayer. The righteous has a heart to pray. He believes with all of his heart that God can affect change. He can affect change in himself, in his circumstances, and in those around him. When you pray to God, do you believe he has power to affect change like this? He goes on and he says, give me understanding according to your word. Give me understanding. Psalm 119, verse 34, has already highlighted this. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Verse 125 says, give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. And then verse 130 says, the entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And here in 169, the petition is to give me understanding according to... To your word. You see, his heart's cry is for understanding as it pertains to God's word. Understanding in this regard. In fact, he says in verse 27 of this psalm, I love it, he says, Make me understand. Make me, God, make me understand the way of your precepts. I, I want to go this way. I want to be led by your hand. Make me understand, Lord. The proverb writer even speaks to applying your heart to understanding. Lifting up your voice for understanding. Then you will understand what? The fear of the Lord and you'll find the knowledge of God. That, that familiar proverb in 3, 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on what? 
your own understanding. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge him. And the promise there is he will direct your path. You see, the Bible instructs us not only, it instructs us to to not rely on our own understanding, but to trust in him, to, to incline ourselves, if you will, to his word. And it's here we get our understanding. Are you praying to God to supply you with understanding according to his word? Do we really desire understanding that accords with this word of truth? In verse 170, the petition is deliver me according to your word. Deliver has in mind elsewhere uh, the idea of rescuing or the idea of, of saving And the context here doesn't necessarily tell us specifically what he's needing deliverance from. But as you read, again, the entire psalm, you see evidence of deliverance from enemies. You see evidence of deliverance from his own sinful tendencies to wander. As he prays in 169 and 170, I think it's important for us to understand that he does so Desiring to be transformed according to the word of God. He prays that he might be transformed by God's word. Now there's something in the New Testament that speaks to that in Romans 12 verse 2. He says, and do not be conformed to the world. And we stop right there for just a moment. You see, the mold of the world is to operate solo. Independent of the Lord. One who is conformed to the world operates much like a natural man would. One who is at ease with his own best thinking. Well, the verse goes on in Romans 12 too. He says, not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, perfect will of God. Listen, as your mind is being renewed by God's word... You have his very own words to pray back to him. A renewed mind filled with God's word opens the way for God's perspective on your situation. And friends, we desperately need his perspective on our situation. Are you really interested in what God thinks about your life? What God thinks about your inner man? about what God thinks about your family, your relationships. And the proverb writer has this exclamation and he says, get wisdom. But you know what else he says? Get understanding. Understanding according to his word. Get it. Go for it. And you might have to move yourself to get it. You might have to do something different to get it. Are you going to be willing? To move, to get this. Is this your heart's desire? Let your cry come before the Lord. Let your supplication for God's favor come before him. You see, prayer is the key and foundation for walking with the Lord. There's a reason it's a highlight. There's a reason it's a highlight. It's to be highlighted. It's foundational. Prayer is the means by which relationship takes place. It's the communication piece That's needed in the life of a Christ follower. Prayer is ongoing. It's not simply a request mechanism. Prayer is reliance upon God, a faithful friend, a trusted father who calls you to pray and to bring forth your prayers. So coming to the end of Psalm 119, I believe a foundational truth expressed is prayer. A child of God is diligent to pray. But there's more here. In addition to prayer... I believe Psalm 119 highlights praise, praise. Look at the text in 171 and 172. My lips shall utter praise. There it is. For you teach me your statutes. My tongue shall speak of your word. For all your commandments are righteousness. All your commandments are righteousness. Praise is what describes a child of God. When a spirit-filled Follower of Jesus gets with other brothers and sisters 
Praise is the result. Praise is intended to be the result. We share in common Christ as our Lord and Savior. And that alone is reason to praise. That alone. We we talked last week in verse 164. That our praise flows out of our time in God's word. Seven times a day, he says. You know, seven times a day ought to be a baseline for our praise. Seems like a low number to me. Seven times. For all God's done in my life, he deserves a great measure of praise. Amen? Right? For all he's done in your life, he deserves a great deal of praise. Notice that verses 171 and 172, they both connect praise with a particular member of the body. What is that member? Mouth. Mouth. You little ones? You little ones, where's your mouth? Where's your mouth at? Yep, your mouth. This mouth is intended, it's been given to you by God to praise him. To praise him. Do your lips utter praise? Does your mouth speak of his word? The praise from the lips comes as one is taught by God in his word. That seems to be the result of being taught by God. Offer up what we call in the scripture a sacrifice of praise. It's a sacrifice of praise. Here again, I'm going to go backward to what we talked about a moment ago. You might have to move out of your comfort zone to praise him. That's not going to come by default, friends. Praise doesn't happen automatically. Praise happens as you are in this word, as you're reading and you're being taught by the Lord. That's a response to being taught by him, our praise. Hebrews 13, 15 says that by him, that's Jesus, let us continually offer. How often? Continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. It's true that praise can be carried out in prayer. And no doubt they're linked together. But it can also, and I believe this is oftentimes seen in the Psalms. The Psalms, we know the Psalms to be the Psaltery, which was the Jewish hymn book, which was intended to be what? Sung. So these Psalms were intended to be sung out to the Lord, singing praise with our mouth. And we'll see in just a moment that praise originates deep down on the interior. But for now, I just want to point out praise for God in song. Is song time, is that song time just simply another part of the service for you? Or do you see it as an opportunity to give God praise for who he is and for his wonderful works? If you've been taught by God, you have something to praise him for. You know, I was thinking of that old song. Some of you younger ones might not know the song, but that's okay. You'll you'll be able to hear the lyrics. Some of you older ones probably will recognize this song. It's by an old group called the Imperials, way back when. And I was thinking about that. That line talks about when you're up against a, a struggle that shatters all your dreams and your hopes have been cruelly crushed by Satan's manifested schemes. And you feel the urge within you to submit to earthly fears. Don't let the faith you're standing in seem to disappear. What do we do? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He can work through those who praise Him. Praise the Lord for our God inhabits praise. Praise the Lord for the chains that seem to bind you serve only to remind you that they drop powerless behind you when you praise. Praise is a powerful thing, friends. Do you know the Lord who made you, gave you that mouth to sing praises to him? That song we sing, the chorus, and with my mouth will I make known. What are we making known? Thy faithfulness. Thy faithfulness. We're praising him. Psalm 19, the first few verses, speaks of, Day unto day. Here in in, in the text, it says, my lips shall utter praise. I was thinking about Psalm 19. It says, day unto day utters speech. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. He's speaking here of creation. The voice of creation is being heard every day all over the place, pointing to praising God. And that got me thinking about Jesus in the New Testament. And I was flipping into the New Testament. 
And you remember when Jesus came into the holy city, if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 19. This was powerful. In Luke chapter 19, remember they're spreading clothes on the road, his triumphal entry, verse 37, chapter 19. As he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, listen to this. The whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice in what? Praise God. How? By what means? With a loud voice. For what reason? For all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd and said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. You get this? Rebuke your disciples. Why? They're being too loud. Too much praise. Stop the praise. And Jesus answers and says, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now it's hard for us to picture stones crying out. But Jesus says that all things, he's he's making a point. Everything he's created has been created for his glory to give him praise and honor. And friends, we've been created in the image of God to point back to others, to those around us, to point back what God is like. When God shows up and grants you a job or he provides you with a pay raise or he pours out his grace in flood-like, unmistakable fashion, do you give praise to him? Do you let him know that you're grateful, that you're thankful for his work in your life? See that your lips utter praise But also notice from the text that your tongue speaks of God's word. Why would you speak of God's word? Well, the psalmist says, all your commandments are righteousness. They're all good. They're all right. They're all holy. They're all true. A child of God has been given the mouthpiece to speak of God and his word. Listen, you speak of the things you deem to be good. You speak of the things that you deem to be good. You speak about the things that matter most to you. How is it that our tongues speak openly and freely of worldly things and says little or nothing about heavenly things? How is it that our tongue speaks of the weather, the latest news and sports very easily, but is eerily quiet when it comes to God's word. My tongue shall speak of your word. And here's why I'm going to speak God's word, says the psalmist. For all your commandments are righteousness. God's word is held in high regard, all of it. The command that he sets forth in his word All of the commands are deemed what? They're deemed righteous. His mouth is opening to speak of God's word. Not because, get this, not because someone is twisting his arm. No, that's not why he's speaking of God's word. But because he sees the great value in what's here in God's word. He loves this word. Why then wouldn't he want to speak of it? And yet today, Christ's followers, what is the world left to believe? Think about this. What's the world left to believe when you rarely, if ever, speak of God and his word? What are they left to believe? They're left to believe that this word For you, you who proclaim to be a Christ follower, they might say, this word really doesn't mean a whole lot to you. That's what they're left to believe. I see here in the text a twofold praise in 171 and 172. There's praise in song that we've talked about. But I think there's praise in our witness to others. My lips shall utter praise. My tongue shall speak of your word. So we have highlights. We highlighted so far prayer and we've highlighted praise. What else can we take hold of here in the text? Look at verse 173. 
Let your hand become my help, for I have chosen your precepts. The word here I want to submit for your highlighting is power. Power. And you might be asking, where'd you get power out of that verse? It's a good question. I hope you asked the question. The reference in the text to your hand becoming my help, he says. We need to understand God is a spirit. He does not have a body like man, right? God is a spirit. So if God is a spirit, how is it that the psalmist is going to be able to, to petition, let your hand become my help? What's he saying? What's he really petitioning? Well, I believe the hand of God is used metaphorically to represent the strength or power of God, right? How often are we praying for God's hand of strength, his hand of power to become our help? Has there been anyone here who has seen the power of God at work in their life, helping them in life's journey along the way? The petition is given in conjunction with, for I have chosen your precepts. That ought to take us back again. It's not new information. 130, verse 130, talks about this whole idea. Um, excuse me, verse 30, not 130, but verse 30 says that I have chosen the way of truth. Your judgments I have laid before me. So this right here, this is really wonderful to see, okay? And it's very much on point theologically, okay? Listen. In saying that he has chosen God's precepts, he's committed himself to walking with God. And to walk with God is to do so relying upon his power. Let me help you further to understand and get this because this is significant to our living here today. In the 21st century. Luke chapter 24 and Acts chapter 1. The disciples are told to wait in Jerusalem for what? What are they supposed to wait for? Power. Power from where? Power from on high. They're to wait in Jerusalem for the power from on high. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, But you, Jesus says this, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. Now, there's three words or phrases there that are very significant in that verse. The first one is power. The second one is Holy Spirit. And the third one is witness. How many in this place would testify that they have chosen God's way of truth? Anybody here chosen God's way of truth? Okay, it's just a couple of you. Some of you haven't, okay? So, um, you've chosen God's way of truth. You've chosen his precepts as your way of living. Which means that declaring that you're going to live God's way according to his word of truth, we've got to understand this, and maybe this is something we haven't understood fully. If we're going to say yes to his precepts, to choosing his way of truth, if we're going to say yes to that, According to what I understand from the Bible, that actually means something. That means something. It means that what his word says, we will do, walking by faith, trusting his precepts to be true from beginning to end. You see, the psalmist is pointing to his need for God's power. Absent of God's power, he realizes he's not very strong. He's significantly weak. He can't do much. In fact, that ties right into John 15. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. You can't do anything of spiritual value when you're not abiding in the vine. We need his power. And the psalmist sees God's hand as the means of his help. He believes by faith that God's powerful hand operating in his life makes all the difference. You know, I was thinking about in the Gospels, and there are so many examples, just a few might suffice to bring this home. But Jesus came, Hebrews says at the beginning that Jesus was the icon, the express image of God. John chapter 1 verse 18 says that Jesus came to declare whom? Who did he come to declare? God. So Jesus in the flesh comes on earth, he's fully man, he's like us in that regard, but yet he's fully God, not like us. He's fully God and fully man. He comes to declare who God is. 
And so in the Gospels, we see the hand of God through the Son of God. And it's interesting to be able to see, like Matthew 14, 31, Jesus stretched out his hand and he caught Peter who was sinking in the sea. Jesus' hand caught Peter. We see a little bit later in in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, 31, he took her, that's Peter's mother-in-law, by the hand and he lifted her up and immediately the fever left her. We see in Mark 141, Jesus moved with compassion. He stretched out his hand and he touched the leper and he said, I am willing, be cleansed. And we see in Matthew 14, that wonderful passage, the miracle, where five loaves of bread and two fish come into the hands of Jesus. Remember that? And do you remember that that five loaves of bread and two fish multiplied when they were in the hands of God? The Son of God, Jesus. You see, Jesus can make a difference. His hand of help truly does make a difference. And you need, all of us do, we need the hand of God to be our help. You need His divine power to combat the flesh, this unworldly, uh, ungodly context that we live in, and the evil one. I was reminded there of 1 John 4, 4, it says, Greater is he, greater is he who is in you than who is in the world. The Holy Spirit in you. See, the power of God is manifested through the child of God who has the Spirit of God abiding in him. Having chosen the way of truth, having chosen God's precepts, it's now two hands to the plow, it's not looking back, it's not going back, it's two hands to the plow, we're walking with the Lord Jesus by faith, not by sight. Trusting that his word is true. And we're willing to speak about it. And we're willing to tell others about it. Listen, walking this road is not easy, but it is simple. It's not easy, but it is simple. His power in you through the person of the Holy Spirit manifests itself in transformed living. You are different. You are a new creation. Your family is different. You go about your job differently. You do your work differently because his hand of power guides you. His hand of power is directing you. It's present in your daily help. How true it is that his power in you is reflective of the helper. I was thinking about the helper we see in the scripture. The helper in us. You know who that helper is, don't you? The Holy Spirit. That's who the Bible refers to him as a helper. He's our helper. He's our encourager. He's the one who comes alongside of us. In fact, he is God with us. He's with us. The Holy Spirit is God. He's with us. And as you look back on your journey with the Lord... Is there evidence of God's powerful hand leading your way? Would you describe your life as a follower of Jesus as powerful, further defined as spirit-led, Holy Spirit-filled, or powerless, walking in the flesh? Prayer, praise, power. Look at 174. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Here's the next highlighter. Passion. Passion. And we see this all throughout Psalm 119. Verse 10. With my whole heart I have sought you. Psalm 119, verse 20. My soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all times. Verse 47, and I will delight myself in your commandments, which I love. And then one of my favorites in verse 97. You remember what 97 says? 97 says, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. I love it. Live with a passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. The psalmist longed. Another word we could insert is desired. He longed and desired for his salvation. Do you live in such a way that reflects this same longing, friends? Are you eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus? Are you looking forward 
to the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls, Peter says. Desire for God, delight in his word. That's Psalm 119. There's not a a whole lot that beats fellowshipping with a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. You you want to linger in that person's presence. I know I've been there and I've enjoyed that. Having some people who are passionate about the Lord Jesus and your time with them seems to go by so quickly because it's such a blessed conversation from the heart. The soul is nourished as you converse of the things of the Lord. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law, literally the text says, your law, my delight. Your word, my delight. It's not, notice, it's not one of his delights. God's word, my delight. It stands alone, unrivaled, without equal. It defines the child of God whose life is consumed in one holy passion, right? We have one instruction book. We have one guidebook to lead our way. Prayer, praise, power, passion. These, I believe, are four highlights of Psalm 119 captured in this final stanza. What about Psalm 119, 175? Here's what I see in 175. I I see a a compilation of the four previous. Prayer, petition, or prayer, praise, power, and passion. He says, let my soul live and it shall praise you. Let your judgments help me. Verse 175, I believe, reiterates the four previous highlights that we've talked about in the text. All right here in this one verse. And it begins and ends with a petition and prayer. Let my soul live. Let your judgments help me. He says, let my soul live. What's what's going to be on the other end of that? And it shall praise you. Earlier it was my lips shall utter praise. Here he petitions God to let his soul live. And it shall praise him. You see, the soul is the inner man. And he's praying to God about what's on the interior. This is so good and so important for us to get. Do you give priority, friends? Do you give priority to what's on the outside or what's on the inside? If you were honest, I think many of us give priority to what's on the outside. We give priority in our lives to what's on the outside. We give very little priority, it seems, to what's on the inside. And I was reminded of Samuel 16 when, remember when Samuel is there and he's going to anoint David and he's looking and he sees this tall, probably very physically fit young man, Eliab. He must be the next king. And God says, no, 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 no. No, I don't select kings that way. That's not the way I do it. You see, man looks on the outside, but God looks where? He looks on the heart. And see, if we know that's what he's looking at, why then do we take such little inventory of the interior? Why is it we're so consumed with what we look like? Why is it we're so consumed with how we dress? Some of us perhaps are more consumed in that than others. But I do believe it's it's a real problem. What might happen if you start taking inventory of your soul? What might happen if you delighted in the inner man over and above the outer man? The psalmist is asking God to let his soul live, to let it continue living, to live to the fullest. You see, the other side of a soul that lives is praise. Let my soul live and it will praise you. Praise from the lips, listen, stems from a soul that praises him. It's like the words of Jesus, out of the overflow of the heart, what speaks? The mouth speaks. What's your heart look like? What's your heart condition? I want you to notice too that the psalmist petitions for the Lord's judgments to help him. We've seen that word help already in the text. How will God's word help him? God's hand, remember, serves as his help. But what of God's word? God's hand is power and strength. God's word is powerful and active, the Bible says. It's truth. It's a guide for his way. And the word of God is essentially a roadmap pointing out how to travel as a child of God. 
compassion is exhibited as it asks God to tend to his soul. He longs for his inner man to live, to be free, to walk at liberty, to be unburdened with the cares of this life. Is it well with your soul today? We sing about that sometimes in the hymn. Is it well? The hymn writer who says, it is well with my soul, was a hymn writer who understood some things about the Lord. Because you see, he had lost some of his children as he wrote that song. Is it well with your soul? Have you been masquerading that everything is okay? When you know that deep down on the inside, there's much work to be done. There's been a lot of construction going on with the exterior. But very little ground has been broken on the soil of your heart. You know there's not much happening on the inside. But you continue to cater to the outside. And all the while you're catering to the outside, what you're doing is you're suppressing the inner man that really, truly needs attention. Let my soul live and it shall praise you. Prayer, praise, power, passion. They intersect right here in 175. Look at the final verse. This is the last word on Psalm 119. What is this last word? How how does he finish? What's the highlight? What's the closing word? As the curtain draws on 119, what's the final word? He says, I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Now 176 has caused some to believe that the psalmist has turned completely away from God. But I would ask, does the testimony of Scripture teach us that one can jump in and out of salvation? When you are in Christ, following the Lord, you are sealed with the power of His Holy Spirit. No one can snatch you out of the hand of the Father. That is the testimony of the Scriptures. So what then is the psalmist addressing in this last verse? What's the takeaway for the reader desiring to learn and walk in the truths of Psalm 119? Let me give you a few things to consider with 176. First of all, I believe 176, we see a picture of humanity. It's a picture of humanity. What's that picture? We sin. We do sin. In our best efforts, sin still seeps through. The earthen tent is the receptacle for this body of sin. Paul writes about that in Romans. Sin that has been completely paid for, yes, but sin that lingers on in what Paul calls the old man. Throughout Psalm 119, what we've been able to see is the psalmist has confessed sin, he's repented of sin, and yet he seems wholly engaged in godly living. What's going on? Well, I believe not only is this a picture of humanity, but I think this is also a pattern of repentance. The psalm highlights a pattern of repentance. A repentance of sin. The psalmist is teaching us that repentance is much more than a one-time event. It's an ongoing arrival at the throne of grace, acknowledging one's sin, hating it and forsaking it, knowing that it displeases his heavenly Father. You see, the follower of Jesus understands that he may very well sin. He doesn't plan to sin. He he realizes, though, that in the event he does sin in this body, he realizes that it may happen. But he also realizes that if it does happen, he has an advocate before the Father whose name is Jesus Christ the righteous. He, He understands that. And the follower of Jesus then, when sin occurs, when it does happen, he knows where to take his sin. Psalm 51, for example. He repents of it, confessing it to God. This God who's faithful and just to forgive our sins, think the cross, and to cleanse us. This is John 1, 9, by the way. I'm not making this up. 1 John 1, verse 9, tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This pattern of repentance characterizes the godly follower of Jesus. Psalm 119 also captures, I believe, a priority of dependence. It's a picture of humanity. It's a pattern of repentance, but it's also 
a priority of dependence. And this is, this is so important for us. Commentator, author, David Guzik, in, in his words here in this psalm, he says, The psalmist's love for and dedication to the word of God has not made him, this is so important, listen, has not made him more spiritually independent, but more spiritually dependent upon God. See, what to us might seem like a spiritual giant. We read Psalm 119 and we think of this person maybe as a spiritual giant. It doesn't have the feel and flavor of someone soaring over the top of everyone, lording it over. As though he had reached some spiritual pinnacle walking with God. See, the longer that you know the Lord, the more you come to realize the depth of your sin. But the identification of sin is quickly channeled into repentance, which brings cleansing and further sanctification from the mighty hand of God. He never leaves nor forsakes the child of his, the sheep of his pasture. And that's in fact how he describes his going astray. He describes it as like a lost sheep. And I love what Spurgeon says about this. He was not like a dog that somehow or other can find its way back. But he was like a lost sheep, which goes further and further away from home. Yet still, he was a sheep. And the Lord's sheep, his property, and precious in his sight. And therefore he hoped to be sought in order to be restored. Prayer, praise, power, passion. And we see here in this last verse, this picture of humanity, a pattern of repentance and a priority of dependence. Our need for him every day, every moment of our lives. The petition is to seek. He says, seek your servant. He prays that God would seek him in order to find him. This isn't just word speak. He desires not to wander, but to walk faithfully with his whole heart, delighting and in pressing into God's way of truth. And we see the highlight of this early on in Psalm 119, where he says, Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. And we see in verse 10, Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. We began this series by talking about a triathlon and the rigorous training that one endures to cross the finish line, even though it might be painful in the process. Triathlon was the, the name of this particular series. And in this life, we know that trials will come. They'll continue to come. As long as we have these mortal bodies, trials will confront us, sin will need to be addressed, and greater dependence on the Lord will be called for. Know that as you run the race marked out for you, as you press on toward the finish line of life, that Jesus has already run before you. And the highlights of Psalm 119 are here to encourage you as you labor for the Lord in this life. Prayer, praise, Power, his hand of help. And passion, which begins on the inside, makes its way out. It shows itself, manifests itself outward. It's hard to fake passion on the outside. You might be able to fool some for a time, but long term, it's going to eat away at you. It needs interior work. The praise comes from the depths of our soul, friends. And when others look back on your life, Will they celebrate the things of the Lord that carried you through the finish line? You know, as we, so as we look at, at this stanza, the, the closing words of Psalm 119, I believe one writer gives us a good summary. And I'd like to just share that with you. He says the psalm ends on the reminder that the power and greatness of God's word does not rest only in its literary brilliance. Remember how brilliant it is, truly, literary. Each one of these stanzas begin with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet, right? 
And he's pointing out, this is not, this is not the only great thing about Psalm 119. Its greatness and glory is in the fact that God comes to us and seeks us in and through his word. And he does that in and through a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. Friends, that's powerful. And that's such good news for us to know and understand. God seeking us. If you want to read about a God who is seeking. In fact, we need to understand that Jesus came. One of the reasons he came was to seek and save the lost. But we see that picture in Luke 15 of the father who stands afar off. And he runs to welcome home his prodigal. That's the kind of God we serve. He's seeking. He is a seeking God. And he desires to see that each of his children are walking with him. He desires that we live lives that might, that might just cause us to have to move somewhere else where we have been to get where he wants us to be. But here's the good news based on what we've, what we've read. One of the highlights. We don't have to figure this all out on our own. In fact, his hand is truly our help. His power working in us now on the other side of the cross, the Holy Spirit working in us is the power, all the power we need for godliness in life, is it not? Friends, that's good news. So we leave Psalm 119. And I pray that we're reminded of some of these highlights in this last stanza that really encompass much, if not all, of what we've covered to this point in Psalm 119. And I pray that it wouldn't end here, but that perhaps you would take Psalm 119 and keep Psalm 119 close by. Because Psalm 119, in many ways, is going to be fuel for you. It's going to be food and nourishment for your soul in the days ahead when trials do come. And I want to encourage you to open up to Psalm 119 and to be able to remember the highlights of our need for prayer, our need to praise Him in the midst of a hard situation going on in my life, to praise Him with my lips. But my praise from my lips is going to come out of my praise that's in the depth of my soul, my inner being. And I'm going to rely upon his power for all things. I'm going to be more dependent upon him and less dependent upon myself. And I want to live in such a way that is passionate about my love for God and my love for his word. Friends, that, that is going to make all the difference in your days ahead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who came here to earth, who came to declare the Father, you. He came to declare you, God. And Father, we have testimony in the scriptures, in the gospels in particular, of the work of your son here on earth and what his life was about. And Father, I I think of these highlights that we've talked about this morning. And I think about Jesus and his life was a life of prayer. Oh, he was constantly in communion with you. Jesus' life was also a life of praise. He was constantly praising you for all your goodness, for all of your works. He was constantly praising your word, pointing to your word as the source of all truth. Father, we thank you. As we think about the life of Jesus, we see that in him there was great power. We, we, we referenced his, his hand at work in the Gospels, and the powerful hand of his, uh, of his help in situation after situation. His hand is willing to reach into messy situations and bring about restoration. And there are some here today who are in some messy situations. Maybe it's messy situations in their own individual life. Maybe it's in their marriage this morning. Maybe it's with family or extended family. And there's some stuff going on in their life this morning, Lord, that's messy. It's hard. It's difficult. This morning I pray, Father, that your hand of help would be their guide to help them and assure them and comfort them to know that they don't have to go through this by themselves. But, Lord, you desire to go through this with them. Father, we see in Christ a passionate man of God. One who was all about and consumed with carrying out the will of the Father. Lord, I pray these things as we see them lived out in Christ would also be lived out in us. 
so that what's true of the scripture, when it says that we who claim to be in Christ, we are now under obligation to walk as Christ walked. Yes, walking in the light. But Lord, we also know and see in the scripture what that walking of Christ was like. May we be walking in that way. Move us, Lord. Move us out of our comfort zones, if need be, to get where we need to be so that we might be walking with you. Shake us up, stir us, rattle our cages, shake up the interior of our, of our walls. Father, I pray you would do a great work and that most of all, Lord, you would get praise, you would get honor, you would get glory. However weak these vessels are, Father, they would be able to show and shine forth your strength, your power in the days ahead for your glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.